It's so nice to see all of you here this morning. Boy, if you're a guest, we're delighted that you've uh, chosen to worship with us today. If you're worshiping with us online this morning, we're grateful that you've tuned in as well. We hope that uh, what we do today will, will be a blessing and encouragement. Given the heat of this last week, I, I almost changed my sermon topic to, you think it's hot here? But I decided to stay with the theme uh, that we are in. We're in this series called Love Thy Neighbor. And today we're going to talk about being available. And we're going to take our, our look from Philippians chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, turn over in Philippians chapter 2. We'll arrive there momentarily. The July 4th holiday time period reminds us of the eight long years of the American Revolution. From those very first shots fired at Lexington and Concord to the signing of the Paris Peace Treaty that sealed our country's freedom, our ancestors fought valiantly that we might be able to gather in a place like this today, and I am ever so grateful that they did. And I'm sort of fascinated with the with what I call the heroes of our nation, who are, who are the lesser knowns. I mean, we know the big names. We celebrate them and are grateful for them. But, but there were a lot of people whose names just really didn't make it into the history book much. Uh, William Dawes is one of those characters. I don't know if that name rings a bell with you or not, but he was responsible for warning the patriots of the arriving British forces on that famous April evening in 1775. He'd seen the signal in Boston's Christ Church steeple. You remember, one of life one of my land, two of my sea. Well, there had been two lanterns hung briefly in the belfry there, and he saw that, and he took off at 9.30 on horseback to warn the surrounding communities. His partner didn't leave for another half hour, and they rode through the countryside. They were both picked up by a British patrol later on, but Dawes managed to escape and continued on spreading the word. Uh, his partner did not escape and had to walk back to Boston the next Next morning. Now we all remember his partner, Paul Revere. That's exactly right. But William Dawes was far more successful in this. Had it not been for a famous poem, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, we might be praising William Dawes as opposed to Paul Revere. He's one of those lesser known heroes of the American Revolution. I'm also fascinated with the lesser known heroes of the faith. For instance, does Mr. Handsome and Charming ring a bell with you from Scripture? Well, you, you haven't read it as Mr. Handsome and Charming. You've read his name as Epaphroditus. But that's what it means, handsome and charming. We don't know what Epaphroditus looked like, but we do know that his character lived up to his namesake. He's briefly mentioned, but there's some great truth in these short verses in Philippians chapter 2. So let me re begin reading to you out of uh, chapter 2, verse 25. <clears throat> but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. Now, with so little information, we have to fill in some of the gaps and we have to maybe speculate a bit. But it appears that the Philippian congregation 
wanting to help the Apostle Paul, sent Epaphroditus not only with an offering gift, a financial gift for Paul, but they sent Epaphroditus to be a gift of help and assistance. Uh, something happened. We're not sure what happened, but Epaphroditus becomes deathly ill. Uh, and then following that, it would appear that he becomes homesick for the, for the folks at home. That, that's typical. You know, you have a, a near-death experience, and you want to go back to the people that you know and love. It says he longs for you. That's what Paul wrote. He longs for you. But Paul decided it was best then to send him back to Philippi. But he writes this commendation, lest the church become critical of Epaphroditus when he shows up and they aren't expecting him to be back. So in verse 25, the Apostle Paul compliments Epaphroditus five times. Now, I'd, I'd settle for one of these compliments from the Apostle Paul, but he compliments him in five different ways to commend him back to this congregation. He calls him my brother. That's a bond created by a personal friendship in Christ. He says he's my fellow worker, the bond that is shared by a common mission or task. He's a fellow soldier, Paul writes, the bond that is shaped by a common commitment and the risks inherent to a cause, in this case, the cause of the gospel. Some historians even suggest that Epaphroditus himself was a retired Roman soldier, which makes this kind of a, uh, has a double meaning to it. Now he's a soldier of the cross. Paul says, he's your messenger, sent on your behalf. And Paul actually uses the word apostle here. And the word apostle means one who is sent. So messenger is an appropriate translation of the word, but this is, this is a, a well-chosen word. It's a classy word that Paul uses to describe who Epaphroditus is and his ministry to him. And then fifthly, he says, he is your solution to my ministry needs. In addition to him bringing the offering, he came to be an associate minister to Paul of sorts. It was a great plan. It was a tremendous effort. It just didn't pan out like everybody thought it would. But out of what we see here, let me point out some lessons that I think will help us shape our lives to be really good neighbors because I'm convinced that Epaphroditus was a good neighbor to Paul and he was a good neighbor in Philippi. He was a good neighbor to all that he met. First thing I want you to see out of, this, out of this unique setting, you and I need to be available for the Lord. Be available for the Lord. Someone wiser than I am put it this way, availability is more important than ability. I like that. Availability is more important than ability. Have you noticed how God often overlooks the famous and the powerful to use those who in the eyes of the world would be more, well, insignificant? But because they were available and because they were willing, they became great partners with God. Now, Epaphroditus is one of those great partners. He was available, he was, a, he was willing, and when the opportunity arose, he was there. And despite the fact that things didn't turn out as he'd hoped, he did deliver the gift, and he did help the Apostle Paul, and he was the carrier of the letter that we know as the book of Philippians back to the church. He did make a difference in history, and here we are 2,000 years later still talking about Epaphroditus. So he made an impact. We don't know, you see, how the story really ends here. Perhaps, perhaps... Epaphroditus was instrumental in, in building the church in Philippi. Maybe God knew that he was more needed back at the church than he was in the prison with Paul. We don't get any of that part of the story. 
You see, God may have had something far more important in mind for Epaphroditus than the plans that the church had and Epaphroditus had. God may have something more in mind for you than what you think he does or what your plans are or what you're hoping to accomplish. Remember in the message two weeks ago, I know that's a stretch. I, I, I know that's a stretch. But there wouldn't even have been a church at Philippi. Had Paul not changed his plans, had God not redirected Paul's journey. Remember when they got to the city of Troas, Paul was going to turn north and go up into Bithynia. But he had this vision of a man in Macedonia, in Greece saying, come over and help us. And so the church at Philippi is the first church to be established in Europe. Who knows if Paul hadn't gone to Europe, what might have happened in Europe? And after all, where do you think our faith came from? Those who settled in Massachusetts that we call the pilgrims that rode the Mayflower, that came to this nation seeking the freedom to worship God in their Christian faith. Who, you see, this, this really is a part of our story. God changed the plans to make these things come to pass. So when it comes to loving our neighbors, I think the first thing we need to realize is we need to be available, just like Epaphroditus was. Proverbs 3.28 says, if you can help your neighbor now, don't say, come back tomorrow, and then I'll help you. And I think most of us want to be that way. I think we want to be available and accessible. But in our hectic schedules, we uh, we can let all kinds of roadblocks stop us from doing what we ought to do. Let me just give you, give you a few examples. Self. I'm my own biggest roadblock sometimes to doing what I ought to get done. Philippians 2.4 in the message. I like the way the message words it. It says, forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. That's pretty good advice, isn't it? Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Don't allow your own interests to supersede those of the Lord's. Here's something else that can become a roadblock. Things, things. Luke 16, 13 says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Things. Art Butchwald wrote, he said, The best things in life aren't things. Now stop and consider. What would you have if you didn't own a thing? I know that it's so hard to imagine given the number of things that we possess. But just stop and think about it. What would you have if you didn't own a thing? Just look around you at the beauty of nature. The flowers of the season are in full bloom and beautiful. But in a mere three months, folks... The verdant greens of summer will give way to autumn's palette of rich golden orange and crimson hues. No artist can duplicate the grandeur of that which belongs to each one of us free of charge every year in the fall of southern Indiana. Shake hands with a friend and feel the warmth of that connection or the joy in sharing a smile with someone else. No amount of money can buy something so valuable. Every time I take a walk with my grandchildren, I am filled with joy because they are so alive at the wonder of life around them. And when I see their aliveness, I am reminded of the wonder around me and I realize that every day I draw a breath is a gift from God. 
Hug your family and hold them close because family is more precious than gold. Remember to thank God for the freedom that we enjoy in this country. It is a gift. It is not easily arrived. Art Butchwald was right. The best things aren't things. Life's best treasures are gifts from God. Here's the third thing. Conditions. The conditions around us oftentimes become a roadblock for us doing what we ought to do. Ecclesiastes 11.4 says, Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. In other words, if you wait for the perfect moment, the perfect conditions, you'll never be available to get anything done. At the beginning of June, big brothers and big sisters needed 100 adults to help step up and become bigs, as they like to call them, big brothers, big sisters, to 100 kids here in Monroe County. Now, I don't know how many people have filled that need during the month of June, but it's not too late to call up and say, hey, I'm available. We've talked about foster care. We've talked about being CASAs. Here is a starting point. If all those are just too overwhelming, you can be a big brother or big sister. You can help a child here or there. we got at least 100 kids connected with this organization alone that need an adult to step up and be an inspirational role model. There will never be a better time than right now. So don't let the conditions, oh, well, when this happens or when that happens or when I get this done or when I get that done, don't allow that to become a roadblock to you being available to be used by God. You see, and anyone, any one of us is capable of finding the right excuse to avoid being available. You think you're too old? Ha! Moses was 80 when God sent him back to Egypt to lead the Israelites out of their slavery. Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 when she gave birth to Isaac. I bet she got the flower on Mother's Day that year. What do you think? <laughs> Noah was 600 when he laid down his hammer and entered the ark. Think you're too old? You're not. Think you're too young? Hardly. Samuel was barely more than a toddler. A toddler. When his, when his mother Hannah entrusted his life to God's service at the tabernacle under Eli's care. David was a late teen or early 20-something shepherd when he went up against the battle-hardened Goliath and won. Mary. Mary was a mere teenager. When the angel Gabriel said to her, you will give birth to the very son of God. Think you're too young? You aren't. You think you're too damaged, you're too broken? Well, you aren't. Noah got drunk after the first harvest following the flood. Abraham lied twice about his wife, Sarah. Moses murdered an Egyptian. David committed adultery and then had Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. Rahab got her start as a prostitute. Tamar seduced her father-in-law. Peter denied even knowing Jesus. Paul persecuted Christians. Need I go on? You see, God uses the whole and the broken, the attractive and the plain, the elite and the ordinary, the skilled and the untrained, the educated and the experienced. God will use any of us if we're available and willing. And when God has a job for us to do, it seldom comes, folks, while we're sitting around twiddling our thumbs. Or it seldom comes in those pious religious moments. Elisha was out in the field with a team of oxen. He was not fasting and praying. He was plowing and sweating when God called him to serve as a prophet. You see, we, we have the mistaken idea that God only calls people when they're in a prayerful attitude. Sometimes he does, but most often it's when we're at our 
daily work. Moses was tending sheep. Nehemiah was serving lunch to the king. Amos was taking care of sycamore fig trees. Daniel was walking to a new home in Babylon. Samuel was asleep. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishing. And Matthew was collecting taxes when God called them to a task beyond their imagination. Wherever you are, God will use you there. I guess what I'm saying is, be available. Be available. Remember, in the eyes of God, availability is more important than ability. Here's the second thing. Take a risk for the Lord. Take a risk. Epaphroditus almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give, Paul writes. The phrase, risking his life, really means gambled with his life. He was a true risk taker. Now, one of the things I have noticed about aging is that with the passing of years, we become more risk-adverse. Whereas the young don't consider risk enough, the mature may think about it too much and miss God's opportunities to be a true servant. Life is complicated. Relationships are risky. I mean, loving our neighbor, I mean, that, that sounds easy. But it's kind of risky, especially when you're a little uncomfortable around people. <laughs> I like this poetic line. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the folks we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> and isn't it true? I mean, it's so easy to talk about, oh, when we get to heaven, everything's going to be wonderful, glorious. I got to get along with the people now. How am I going to do that? Love your neighbor. Take a risk. Build a relationship. I mean, that's what one life's all about. Loving your neighbor is risky. Just how risky is your theology? Does risk draw you closer to God or does it drive you farther away from him? Max Lucado writes, fear doesn't want you to make the journey to the mountain. If he can rattle you enough, fear will persuade you to take your eyes off the peaks and settle for the dull existence of the flatlands. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that matter. In other words, our significance, our purpose, our meaning all die when we decide to let our fear keep us from taking a risk for Jesus Christ. Epaphroditus was a man who gambled with his life for the sake of Jesus Christ. But the church has always been advanced by those who were willing to risk everything. And the early church, many did die. James was the first. He was beheaded. According to church tradition and history, Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Thomas was lanced. Matthew died on the sword. Simon was sawn in two. And the list goes on. But from those early days all the way to the present around the world in the church, the kingdom of God grows best at the inspiration of those who risk everything for Jesus Christ. Before I traveled to India some years ago, I made a trip to the IU clinic, which was nearly enough to make me rethink my whole trip. The nurse said, oh, you know, mosquitoes in India can be deadly. You'll have to take preventative action against that deadly malaria. She went on to explain my choices. Each medication was carefully described with its peculiarities and its potential side effects. I said, side effects? And she said, oh yeah, she said, it may keep the malaria away from you, but there may be some pretty nasty side effects. So even if I didn't get malaria, I'm 
I, I might struggle with the side effects. This was not going to be easy. Then she went on to describe the gazillions of possible diseases I might get around the world and which ones did I want to risk getting and which ones did I want to prevent? Because you can't take all of the medications. And then, then her next question really caught me off guard. She said, for my last precautionary vaccine, she wanted to know if I wanted to be injected with the dead virus or if I wanted the oral version of the live virus, which she said is a whole lot better and a lot more powerful. And I said, yeah, you think? You, a live virus? Who wants to take a live virus? And I opted for the live virus because she said it was the best protection. I just prayed I wouldn't howl at the next full moon after taking the live virus. And then so, so it's all done, you know, and I'm headed out. And right as I'm going out the door, she, she says, oh, one last thing. Here's a first aid kit just in case. <laughs> I felt like I was really risking something when I walked out of the clinic until I got to India. And I met the wonderful people there, the wonderful Christians there, whose lives were on the line every day because they were being persecuted for their faith. That was true risk. You see, the one thing we all have in common with all of our neighbors is that we're lost by the power of sin. And like the deadly virus carried by the deadly mosquitoes, sin will kill us unless we know the cure found in the one who risked everything to bring us life. Be available. Take a risk. Last of all, commit yourself to the Lord first. I've never had the impression that the Apostle Paul handed out compliments like candy. I believe he honored those who truly deserved to be honored. Paul himself set the bar of commitment pretty high. And so only those who he deemed worthy would he compliment. Epaphroditus was one of those. My fellow brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. All I need to do is read Paul's description and I hold Epaphroditus in high regard. Here was a man committed to serving Christ who was engaged on the spiritual battles of the, of the day, who was storming the beaches for the gospel of Jesus Christ so that as many people as possible just like him could find Jesus Christ and have life everlasting. June 6, 1944, D-Day, Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, France in the greatest amphibious invasion of history that would eventually bring World War II to a conclusion. Many of you, I suspect, have seen this famous picture of General Eisenhower speaking to a group of paratroopers just before they climbed aboard their C-46s, C-47s, and the gliders that would take them deep behind enemy lines to help them secure that victory. But what most Americans today don't know is that back home in the States on June 6, 1944, there was a prayer battle taking place. Photographs taken on June 6 so just how widespread the prayers were. There was a sign in the window of a novelty button shop that read, Sorry, no covered buttons today. We are praying for the success of the invasion. A church sign read, Come in and pray for Allied victory. Hourly intercessions on the hour. Americans in synagogues and churches bowed their heads in prayer. New York City's Mayor LaGuardia took to the airwaves, urging citizens to send forth their prayers to the Almighty to bring total victory in this great and valiant struggle. In Washington, D.C., President Roosevelt, who had sons in military service, urged Americans to join him in praying for all of America's sons in battle. Stores throughout the land closed, 
Prayer services were swiftly organized in small towns and big cities alike. America prayed on D-Day. And I'm confident those prayers were vital, as vital if not more vital, to the victory as the landing craft and the cargo planes which delivered brave men to the battle zone. Hoosier-born and educated Ernie Pyle, an embedded war correspondent whose likeness is captured on IU's campus in front of Franklin Hall, arrived on the beaches of Normandy on June 7th, the day after the initial invasion. And he described the battlefront in these words. He said, with every advantage on the enemy's side and every disadvantage on ours. And then he goes on to write that the total allied casualties of that particular invasion were remarkably low. Only a fraction, in fact, of what the commanders had been prepared to accept. And then he wrote this. He, he finished up writing this. He said, now that it is all over, it seems to me a pure miracle that we ever took the beach at all. A pure miracle. Prayers mattered. They still do. And while the beaches at Normandy today, today bear only the scars of that great cause 74 years later, the cause of the gospel and the battle for the souls of those who are lost rages on still. Epaphroditus was a man who was committed to Jesus Christ at all cost. And who I'm confident that once he got back home to Philippi, prayed every day for Paul and his ministry and the advancement of the gospel. So what is your level of commitment this morning? Where does it start? Are you available? Are you willing to risk? Where does your commitment start? Can I ask you this? I know you may not be able to make mission trips. I know you may not be able to help with big brothers, big sisters, or boys and girls club, or, or, or foster parenting, or, or some of the other things. You may not even be able to help downstairs with our own wonderful children's department. But can you pray? Can, can you pray? Maybe the better question is, will you pray? I know you can. Will you? Will you start there? And then take a risk. Start with a small one, and then build. Most of all, make yourself available. If you do those three things, commit yourself to prayer, take a risk, and make yourself available, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Epaphroditus did. We can too.